Hey everyone, welcome to the 19th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Kyle Lacroix. Kyle is the Chief Education Officer of Sets Consulting, a coaching and educational service for elite coaches and competitive players. He's certified by the USPTA and the PTR, as well as the ITF, and has experience working with ATP and WTA players, as well as NCAA collegiate players. On today's episode, we discuss his time at Saddlebrook learning from three top 10 WTA players, why coaches need to improve and grow at their craft, and a few fun sayings he refers to as Kyleisms. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Kyle, welcome to the pod. Jonathan, thank you so much. Honor and a privilege to be on. Uh, thank you for your time and and just having me on. I know we've been talking about it for a while, so we're finally making it happen. For the listeners out there, this is the first time I've ever laid eyes on Kyle. We met, you either DM'd me or commented on one of my early Instagram posts, and it was likely something super intelligent, thoughtful, designed to make me a better coach. And I kind of read it and was like, man, who who is this guy? And I messaged you back. And over the last two years, you're someone that I have looked to when I've needed advice on either coaching a stroke or how to talk to a player or just wanting to know your general thoughts on, on any tennis topic. You don't know this, but you actually made your way onto my unofficial uh, advisory board for tennis coaches. So I don't know if that's going to be a career highlight for you, but you know, over the last two years, like I said, you're someone that I've learned to lean on uh, kind of like in a mentoring role. And, you know, I've, I've, feel very grateful that we've kind of got this relationship going. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, that that says a lot. And uh, I, I am I am a bit humbled by that. But I mean, it's it's been an absolute privilege seeing your growth on on Instagram and, and on social media and and seeing you kind of raise the level a little bit from when you first started. And it's like I said, I mean, this is why I do what I do to, to help coaches like you and and so thank you for entrusting me with that. Thank you for, you know, listening and, and, and giving me your time. And I mean, I, I tell all my students, I can teach everyone. I can't make everyone learn. So it's a two-way street, you know. So uh, the fact that you're open and receptive to it, that differentiates you from 99% of the people. We're about to get into your background, but I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that you making it onto my unofficial advisory board has to be kind of like the top of your career achievements at this point. Does that sound about right? That is at the top. I mean, all other things just pale in comparison. Absolutely. So for everyone out there listening who doesn't know you, can you just give us a, a brief history of your background, kind of how you got going in the game of tennis, where you're coaching now, and, and kind of what you've been up to the last couple of years? Sure. So uh, I grew up in Florida, in the Tampa, St. Pete area. Did the Florida junior tennis thing. It was enjoyable. I actually was a competitive swimmer. Uh, and then just through family and swim coaches, I kind of got burnt out, which might have been a little bit too bad because I was actually they're talking about me swimming in the Olympics. Um, but I kind of found tennis. And once I hit the first ball and I hit it clean and I hit against the wall and the wall never quit and it never gave up and it never missed. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the best game ever. So I did the whole junior tour in Florida. And just from that, I always knew I wanted to stay in the game somehow, some way. And I ended up going to school at a small division two school in Michigan called Fair State University. 
where they have a professional tennis management program. I was so fortunate to be a part of that. It's exactly what I needed at the time. I was a big tennis geek. And so I just thought, how cool would it be to be at a college where I'm surrounded in a program with a bunch of other tennis geeks? And I just I just learned all day and I, I learned how to teach and, and coach properly. It was a tremendous resource. After Fair State, uh, I transferred to the University of Michigan, Go Blue. Uh, I got my MBA from the University of Michigan, Ross School of Business. Then I came down here to South Florida in 2004. And I started at a club. I was employee number one, actually, of a club in Boca Raton called the Oaks at Boca Raton. Uh, when I arrived down in Florida, it was wasn't even built yet. And I just had this vision of a beautiful club, didn't have to deal with golf. We just have tennis, fitness, spa, and it, it's just been a great place. I've been there for 18 years and that's been, that's been a privilege. And then I started Sets Consulting in 2020. Uh, and that's been a real highlight for me. That's probably the next chapter. Uh, I work with tennis federations, private coaches, clubs, just kind of helping them grow in the industry, get better also with coach development. And I kind of got into that route just through, I've done the player development thing. It's fun. I love it. I love the players, but I felt like a lot of my voice, a lot of my knowledge was just going directly to that player. And it wasn't really, it wasn't really getting out there enough. And I thought, well, if I can get to the coach first, then the coach can use some of my knowledge, pass along to the player. And it was more kind of like a divide and conquer idea. And so that's what I've been doing. I'm heavily involved with USPTA as well as PTR. I'm certified in both. And I've been on the USPTA uh, division board for, for quite some time in terms of uh, national social media committee, the membership committee, the marketing committee. So I've spent a lot of time with USPTA and yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff mixed in, which I'm sure we'll touch on, but that's kind of a, a general overview of, of my life up to this point. And now here we are. Every decision I've made in my life has led me to this point right here on this podcast. That's pretty cool. Yeah, this is, this is the pinnacle of everything you've ever dreamed that you could achieve for sure. Um, so we know that you are shaped by the people you've coached under, the people you've worked with. And I know that you spent time at Saddlebrook early in your coaching career. So you can, can you kind of tell us what that experience was like and what you learned from coaching at Saddlebrook? Teaching at Saddlebrook was a huge watershed moment. I, I grew up 45 minutes away from Saddlebrook. So it was always a dream of mine as a junior to go there, to play there, to teach there. I just thought it would be a cool thing to be like a coach at Harry Hopman Academy. And it was so special. And, and especially the time when I was there, because you know, I was a freshman in, in college and I kept contacting the director of tennis there, Howard Moore. And, you know, I kept saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm a freshman in college, but I, I really want a job there. And he kept kind of saying, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. You're, you're too young. You're too this. Maybe I don't have room for it. I said, please just give me an opportunity. I promise you. I won't disappoint. And finally, I don't even think he trusted me. I just think it was I wore him down because I kept calling him every week and emailed him. And finally, I, I, I just wore him down. He's like, OK, fine. You can come for one week and we'll see how you do there. And so I knew that was my opportunity. I got down to Saddlebrook and this was in the early 2000s. So we had, you know, Martina Hingis, Jennifer Capriotti and Justine Ennin all there training which, you know, those are three top 10 players at the time. I think at one point it was 
three in the top five, which is pretty incredible. And just, you know, being at Saddlebrook, dealing with, you know, the the guests of the hotel. I also worked at the academy side, so I kind of had the best of both worlds. But seeing how those players train the professional players, it was it was great. And loads of stories on that. I got to be Martina Hingis's hitting partner for a while. So that was always enjoyable. I, I can't tell you one thing about that is a lot of the coaches and players didn't like to hit with Martina. They didn't like to practice with her because they just want to go back to the baseline. And they wanted to just hit the ball as hard as they could and, and play against Martina Hingis, you know, which was fine. I understand that. But, you know, she didn't really like that wasn't her thing. She, she likes to practice with like half an hour, 45 minutes of mini tennis. And it just drove players and, and coaches crazy when she did that. So one day she's practicing and I'm on a court with some juniors and I'm teaching them like we're doing mini tennis and we're teaching I'm teaching them volleys and angle volleys and how to get to the net. And I guess either her or her mother were, were watching and they thought we want to we want to practice with him. So after I got done that day, one of the head coaches came up and says, hey, tomorrow morning, 930, you're hitting with Martina. And I'm thinking Martina Lake is a is a is a resort guest. I'm like, OK, M- M- Martina, who? And like Martina Hingis, she's she's like number two in the world right now. I'm like, oh, OK. So I go on court meet them. They're very nice to me. And we played mini tennis for like 30 minutes. And we did every iteration of mini tennis up the line, cross court, doubles alleys, short angles. And, um, you know, it it just just kind of taught me like I I need to stick to my guns because all the other coaches there were teaching baseline and hitting the ball as hard as you can and all this kind of academy stuff, which is totally fine. But it just wasn't me. And I didn't really fall into that mold of I'm going to do what everyone else does. I'm going to do what I feel is best. I'm going to do the basics, the fundamentals, and the right people are going to see that. And eventually they did. And that was Martina Hingis. So you just mentioned you worked with three of the greatest women's players ever, Jennifer Capriati, Martina Hingis, and Justine Ennin. They're obviously different personalities. They clearly had different playing styles, but were there any common traits, practice traits, characteristics that you could kind of link those three players and go, oh, you know what? That's why those women have had success on the WTA tour. That's a great question. So all three were completely different in terms of personalities. But one thing that they all had in common was that when they stepped on the court, it was business. That was their job. There wasn't a lot of chit chat or small talk. It was we get on the court, we warm up, we do things the right way. It's full intensity. When we sit down and take a break, okay, we talk, we laugh, maybe say a joke. But once we stand up and we get back on the court, it's back to business. And they were all like that. Um, it, it, there, there was no joking around from the baseline or yelling at each other across the court. It was, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And there's no talking, there's no goofing around. This is my job and I'm going to take it seriously. So that was pretty much the, the common denominator with all of them. I mean, Hennen was the hardest worker I've ever seen. Uh, she just She just gave 110% on everything. And I'm watching her and she wasn't the, the, the biggest player, but I mean, she just absolutely maximized everything she had in her, her coach at the time, Carlos Rodriguez was such a great, great man. But I mean, he just put her through the paces and she took it. No complaints, no nothing. But it, it was just, once you get on the court, it's, it's a job, it's business and you do it to your maximum potential. And then whatever happens after practice, go do your thing, have fun, laugh, whatever. But 
once you get on court, there's no messing around. You were a freshman, you know, teaching at a prestigious tennis academy, like we said, working with top players, um, and you're just getting going. And I know if I was in your shoes, I would feel pretty nervous. I'd be second guessing myself, maybe a little imposter syndrome. Uh, was there anything that stood out early in your in your time there where you look back and you go, man, I can't believe I said that, or I, I can't believe I did these things? Was there a huge learning opportunity that you can recall that you can share with us? Oh, I've made tons of mistakes. I am the king of failure. And that's probably why I am where I am now in my career is because I did fail and I failed a lot, but I learned something from each of those. I mean, coming into Saddlebrook, I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. I'm going to just go all out. I'm going to try to impress and do this and do that. And I really thought I was like Harry Hopman at the Academy. And, and I, I, I was a bit too, too hard on some of the students. And I, I don't mean that in like I was... I was necessarily verbally hard. I just mean I, I, I use my my physical size. I'm obviously this is a podcast people can't see, but I'm I'm six six two thirty five. So I look more like a bouncer than I do a tennis pro. But I, I I definitely used my size as an intimidating factor to make players do what I wanted them to do instead of maybe listening to them. It was pretty much my terms. I had a bit of an ego, not in terms of oh hey I'm so good and this and that. It was just I did what was best for me, not what was best for my players. Um, and that's something I look back and I, I definitely regret, but that's probably the biggest thing. And I mean, I'm sure I've said a bunch of stupid stuff and did a bunch of stupid stuff. And like I said, I mean, I, I, I'm the king of failure. I'm the king of mistakes. But the difference between me and a lot of people is that I don't make the same mistake twice. So like we said, you know, unfortunately on this podcast, you don't get video of Kyle, but I... I have never seen anyone so happy and smile so big to discuss how they are the king of failure. I, I've never seen someone so proud of that. So you, but, but no, but, but it's funny though because I did my, I did my, uh, I did a research project at Stanford. Um, I have a master's of education from Stanford, and one of my research projects I did was on failure. It's called the Loser's Edge, and I interviewed 298 athletes, Olympic athletes, professional athletes from all types of sports. And I asked them what their biggest failure was. And you would think 298 athletes, different sports, different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, that there would be a cornucopia of, of, of reasons why they failed. And really it just came down to seven reasons. And so that was one of the things where I've always been fascinated with that because we, we talk so much about success, but we don't talk about how athletes got to that success. And and failure is a part of that. You know, I, I don't know one single great athlete that hasn't failed and failed big and failed miserably, but they learn from that, they accept it, and then they move on. So, you know, I think like most people would hear what you just said and go, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the, even the best players, they, they have struggles, they fail, they learn from it. That's a very, very normal thing. And then when they are the person in that situation and they are struggling they can't look at it with the same amount of reason. Why do you think there's that disconnect when you watch someone else go through it versus going through it yourself? Because logic and emotion do not connect. You can either be logical or you can be emotional. You can't be both at the same time. And failure is a very emotional thing, right? You put in a lot of effort into it, blood, sweat, and tears. And when you get to that point where you do fail, you're not looking at it from the 10,000 foot view. You're looking at it as, oh my goodness, this is the worst. I'm at my lowest point. 
and so again, it's just the emotional side of the brain and the logical side of the brain. Now, I'm I'm much more logical than a lot of people. My wife calls me a bit of a robot. She thinks I'm either like an alien or a Navy SEAL because I'm just I'm just like flatline. Like my resting heart rate is 41, so I'm pretty much dead. But you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm very logical and I, I I don't I don't really panic that much and. But again, when you're when you're putting in that much work and you're so close to a goal and you fall short, you can't help but be upset and be emotional. So it's very tough in that moment to look back and say, oh, hey, I'm so glad I failed. This is going to be so helpful for me. It's man, I, I, I really screwed up and I, I feel terrible. So I know I find it difficult. I, I would describe myself very similarly to you. I mean, my friends think I'm a robot as well. And you know, I'm not very emotional. I like to think through things logically. My dad at one point actually lovingly referred to me as calculating, uh, knowing that I will kind of always think through the situation. But I know that when working with my players, having emotion and being emotional about the process is the norm. So have you found that difficult? And maybe how have you bridged that gap to feel that emotion and kind of see the growth process through the eyes of your players? I love that you're asking this because this has been one of my biggest challenges as a coach is to show some sort of empathy and to understand my players. And and really, I think it starts from the very beginning. Uh, It starts when you first meet that player, you make an introduction and you actually get to know the player on a personal level. You get to know their likes or dislikes, who they are as a person. And then I think it's a little bit easier to then feel for them, to show a little bit of empathy but if it's just a random student and they're coming out, it's going to be tough to make that connection. But you need to have a connection to then have a direction. And I think for a lot of coaches, you know, it's tough because we view it as, you know, we're, we're hitting a tennis ball all day. It comes very easy to us. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. So we become very robotic and even introverted. Most tennis coaches are actually introverts. We're not extroverts, but we become extroverts on the court. And so because of that, as, as introverts and as people who seem to have the answers, we tend to almost fall into that character a little too much where we completely close that side of our, our, our emotional, empathetic side. And we just become tennis coach. I do things. I, I'm going to do them right. I got to be the good example. I got to be strong. When in reality, if we show a little bit of vulnerability ourselves, that goes a long way. If we, if we share something with our players, and again, it starts from the beginning. If we get to know our players, it helps. But vulnerability is the toughest thing, right? Because it's the first thing we look for in other people. It's the last thing we see in ourselves. And so I think it's just, it, it, it's difficult for a lot of coaches, but especially you and I, because we are so logic-minded and, and, and we think like that. But it's, it's a matter of opening up yourself a little bit giving them something so that they know, hey, there is a human inside there. One thing that helped me, my wife coached at Duke uh, on the golf team, and I love golf, and she was a great player. She played at Florida. She played in a couple U.S. Opens, and I would make her, I'd show her videos of my swing all the time. I'd make her give me lessons on the range, and, and she got me a lot better. But there would be times where she would tell me to work on something, and I would try it and immediately go, ah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like that. Like, that's not for me. And she would kind of go, hey, you know, whatever, like, I'm a great player. I'm coaching a, a national championship golf team and you shoot high 80s every time you play. But sure, you tell me what, what you think is best. And I would just go, man, that 
that is exactly what my players do when I'm maybe teaching them the palm down serve for the first time where they have a slight grip change. And that really helped me kind of get into the mindset of someone learning something that they're really not comfortable with. Well, not, and, and, and to add to that, I think it's important that we understand if we put ourselves in our players' shoes and what I'll do with a lot of coaches with the USPTA, I was a, a USPTA tester for 15 years. I've tested, certified, and mentored over 1,500 pros in the USPTA. But what I do with a lot of coaches is to make them feel like the student, I make them play with their opposite hand. And they very quickly realize how frustrating it can be. And they understand, oh, wait a minute, this maybe is what my player is feeling because maybe it comes so easy to them. But when you make them a little bit uncomfortable, that's kind of where the growth comes in. And, and then they realize, wait a minute, this is what my player is reacting to. This is why they're struggling. So I think if you can you know, put the shoe on the other foot, if you can play with the opposite hand, if you can put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, you know, we tell our players all the time, get comfortable feeling uncomfortable because that's the way it's going to be. And, and a lot of tennis coaches are kind of hypocrites with that. I know I have been where we're like, we're always talking about the player has to grow and the player has to develop. But we as tennis coaches, what do we do about that? We don't. We stay the same. So I'm like, we, we have to we have to change it. We have to be just as good as our players. And if our players are improving, we have to improve as well. So previously you mentioned sets consulting and you know trying to create a legacy of you know helping the coaching industry and uh, mentoring younger coaches. The quality of coaching is better. What are you currently doing on that front? Uh, who are you working with and, and how are you trying to accomplish that? So I, I do provide education, educational curriculum. Uh, I am working with some tennis federations right now, as well as some private coaches internationally in Europe, as well as in Asia. It, it's not just coaching here in the U.S. It, it's it's really coaching everywhere because it's it, it's a people thing. It's not even a sports thing. It's just a people thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help out as much as I can. I have a couple tour coaches that I also speak with about their players. I'm not looking to to take credit for their players or steal their players. I have no interest in the player development thing anymore. I have an interest in the coach development thing. And I just feel like my message and my voice can reach a lot more people through the coaches because then what I tell them, they pick up, they improve, and then they can share that with their students. So I have a little bit of an imprint, not only on the coaches, but also on all their students. So like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of the, the divide and conquer. And I'm very, very fortunate to be in the position I'm in where I've, I've put in my time. I've been doing this for four decades. So it's, it's one of those things where I've experienced a lot. I have a lot, of, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience through private clubs, commercial clubs, resorts, academies, uh, as, well as, as well as professional levels. So um, again, I, I, I like to use my, my knowledge, my experience, my resources, and I just help out other coaches. And and um, it's 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 a very nice business. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative that they are so open minded. But again, not all coaches are. So the coaches I work with are, you know, the best of the best. What are some of the main things that you think we as coaches need to improve at quickly uh, to improve the overall experience and, and the growth for our students? Well, one thing is our professionalism. You know, I, I think the way coaches come off and unfortunately, I, I hate to say this, but the tennis industry is a marginal industry. We have a lot of coaches out there who, God bless them, they, they, they work hard and they see a lot of students and they teach, 
but the way they come off, their professionalism, just simple things, you know, not answering emails, not following up, not showing up on time, not having the court ready. And these are kind of some of my pet peeves, but we work so hard. We have such a skill. Being a teacher or coach is like one of the greatest jobs you can ever have. And in most cultures and most countries revere teachers and coaches. And for us in here, I mean, we, we give so much of our time and we really change lives. I mean, if you, if you, if you poll a hundred people on the street and you ask them who the most influential person was when they were growing up outside of a family member, they're probably going to tell you a teacher or coach. They're not going to tell you a tax attorney or a gastroenterologist. They're going to tell you it was a coach. And so because we have this impact, it can be used for the good or the bad, but we have this impact. We are so vital to society, to our students. Why not be on that same level as doctors and lawyers? Why not get paid the same as doctors and lawyers? Because people think when I, when I am at a party or some social event and I tell them I'm a tennis coach, they're like, oh, that's great. You get to play tennis all day. And then they kind of swing their arm with all their wrists and like, I'm like, is that really what your tennis swing looks like? Because you need my help. But that's what they think we do. And I would love to change the industry in such a way where tennis coaches are revered just as much as doctors and lawyers and everyone else. Because I really think we're just as important. I mean, we, we help with, with keeping people healthy, right? Keeping people in shape, developing and growing the person, not just the player, I mean, there's a lot of things we do. And if you've ever worked in a country club, you sit down with one of your students. Guess what? You're not just the tennis pro. You're the, the, the psychologist. You're the marketer. You're, you're a friend. So th there's a lot of things that we have other than just the ability to hit a tennis ball. But I don't think we sell ourselves enough where we have the experience. We have the knowledge. It's just one of those things where we, we sell ourselves too short and we need to up their professionalism a little bit. We need to show people that, hey, we are on the same level as you know the highest people in society. Aside from professionalism, are there any other entertaining pet peeves that you have uh, for, for us coaches? Uh, well, not having the court ready for the player. So the player is giving you their two most precious commodities, right? Their time and their money. And the fact that, you know, a player will show up before the coach, not a good look. The fact that the tennis court isn't ready, the basket of balls isn't out, you know, little things like this. Another thing is coaches talking or using a cell phone during a lesson. That to me, like that just blows my mind. I, my student is paying me for my time and my expertise. Verizon Wireless is not. So it's one of those things where I'm going to give all my attention and all my expertise to the student. I don't care what's on my phone. Now, listen, if a family member is sick or you're waiting on a service contractor to come to the house, if there's something big and important, then okay, maybe have your phone on you, but you don't need to be scrolling through Instagram in the middle of a lesson. You need to be focused on the student. What does the student want? What's best for the student? And I can guarantee you what's best for the student isn't you checking out how many likes you got on your latest post. What's best for your student is making sure that they understand the knowledge and the information that you're giving them, making sure that they're comfortable, making sure that they're improving. And listen, whatever happens after the lesson, boom, you can look at your phone. But I've never been in a situation in my entire life where I've needed to be on a phone call in the middle of a lesson. It's never happened. And if people need to reach me and it's that big of an emergency, 
they know how to contact me. It's that simple. You know, players and coaches taking shortcuts, that's another thing. And that's like a big character flaw. When I see people taking short, everyone wants to know the secrets. Everyone wants to know the shortcut. In reality, there are no secrets. People are terrible at keeping secrets. So if there was a secret, it would be out by now. As far as shortcuts go, if you take shortcuts, you're going to cut yourself short. Something as simple as if your lesson is, say, on court six, and you cut across and walk across court four and five, to me, that just that just screams like there's alarm bells going off. Because if you're willing to take a shortcut on that, what are you doing in private that you're cheating on that you're taking a shortcut with? And so there's 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 things like that that just kind of in terms of the professionalism, those are things that just kind of boggle my mind. We as coaches, we have a lot of responsibility, right? We have to not only motivate ourselves, but maybe the night before you go through your nine or 10 hours on court, you try to plan the lesson or the clinic. You try to think about the order that you need to present the information in. And then you got to go out in court and in real time assess how the students are doing with those drills and, and how they're doing emotionally and how that might need to be communicated. The whole lesson plan could get blown up. You've got a lot of stuff going on when you're uh, there as a coach. On the flip side, what do you think the player's responsibility and accountability are uh, for their end of this coaching process? The player is accountable for their effort, right? They have to give a full effort. They have to be receptive. I'm not saying they always have to agree on what you're telling them, but they have to be open to it. There's always going to be resistance points, right? There's always going to be a stage where you're telling a player something and either they don't understand it because of a communication issue or they don't agree with it because of a lack of knowledge or maybe even it's from a previous coach that hammered home a point and they are kind of stuck on that. And you're trying to maybe evolve that a little bit. So as long as they give forth full effort and they're receptive, then, you know, I have no problems. But again, the player also needs to remember their number one job, which is whether it's in practice or whether it's in a match, is to be aware, right? Be aware of the situation. Be aware of what's going on. Be aware of, of the practice game or the practice drill or what's happening in a match. Do you know the score? What's How are you winning points? How are you losing points? So the player has a very easy job of just effort, being receptive, and being aware. And if they can accomplish those three things, it's going to be a pretty solid practice. And coaches tend to, you know, go on and on about you need to do this and you need to do that. And really, if you work on one thing, that's going to be enough for the player, you know, and, and the player is going to appreciate that a lot more than you throwing 50 things at them. Are there any enjoyable player pet peeves that you'd like to share? Oh boy, how much time do we have? Hey, I mean, look, we, we can make this a whole second episode. Honestly, I might invite you back on just to do this. I've been waiting the whole podcast to talk about this one. Yes, pet, pet peeves for sure. So I think when players come off the court and they have a negative attitude after they win. So perfect example, you know, if you have a player and they win, I don't know, like 6-2, six, 6-2. Two, six, two. Uh, it's a pretty comfortable, straightforward victory, and they come off and, you know, they're like, oh, well, I didn't do this right, I didn't do this right, or, oh, well, you know, my opponent my opponent just wasn't that good, so it's not really a good test. I always ask them, well, maybe your opponent wasn't that good because you made them not that good. Maybe, maybe your game was strong today, and you made the right decisions, and you hit the right shots, and you made them look bad, and maybe the next time you play them, you won't be on, 
and maybe they might beat you. So maybe they're not a bad player. Maybe you actually made them play poorly, and that's why they, you know, were missing a lot of first serves and and they were double faulting quite a few times, and you know they they weren't able to hit their backhand as deep because of all the good things you were doing. You know, uh, I think you have to spin the narrative, right? We have this this horrible term now, alternative facts, right? And but you gotta you gotta manage the spin, and you have to say, well, listen, even if maybe the stats don't show it, maybe the match wasn't that pretty to watch, and I still got the win. There had to be something good that came out of that. Because if the match was that bad, you probably would have lost it, right? And then the other one was, you know, a player that says, oh, you know, I lost the match, but they hooked me really badly in the fourth game of the first set. So I'm like, well, what happened to the rest of the set and a half? Because if they only hooked you on one point, you have like another 70, 75 points where you could have done something. So I don't think one hook is is really going to change the course of a match, right? And and then, of course, you know, it's just the understanding of one bad call shouldn't ruin the entire match. Again, you got to see the big picture. You got to take a step back. But th- th- those are two of my biggest ones right there. We had 25 kids at our afternoon clinic today. And I, I didn't ask him this, but if I had, I'd know what the answer would have been. And if I were to say, how do you think you're playing lately? There's going to be almost no one in that group that goes, man, you won't believe it. I am just zoning. I am feeling the ball. I feel great. Tactically, I know exactly what I'm doing. I think a vast majority of them would kind of say, oh, you know, ball ball feels bad. I feel like I have no control. I don't know what I'm doing out here. Maybe a few would concede like, you know, yeah, fine. I feel, I feel pretty good. You know, I, I think I'm playing all right. Why do you think the default response for a player is to be so critical about their own game? Because I think a lot of people have an issue with perfectionism. They're expecting to have the perfect match. And, and that's also a big difference between a junior player, a recreational player, an amateur player, and the best tennis players in the world, right? If I have a junior that does say that they're feeling amazing and they're playing unbelievable and lights out and this is incredible, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, we're now wasting your A game on, on, on today, right? Because most of the time, you're not going to ever play your A game. If you do, you're lucky in your career if you have matches where you're playing your A game, maybe two or three times in your life, because that A game means you're playing in the zone, and it doesn't happen all the time. So a great player understands they're going to be playing with their B or C game most of the time. So how good, really, is your B or C game? And that's a, that's a whole nother topic, too, we could get into. But in terms of why people do that, I, a part of it is – they have this this idea of of perfection, which in tennis just it, it doesn't exist, and they don't understand that they don't know any better. So they feel like they need to hit every ball perfectly clean, as close to the line as possible, as hard as possible, and just like if you leave a bad review for a restaurant, that that same idea is well, you're you're not going to remember all the good experiences you had at a restaurant. You're going to remember the one bad one, and that's what's going to make you write the Yelp review. So as a tennis player, if you have the one bad shot, that one bad shot is the one that you're always going to remember. You know, oh, I shanked it off my backhand or, oh, I, I completely flubbed that second serve return on break point. And so we tend to focus on the negative aspects, not on all the things we did well. Because clearly, if, if you're playing and you won enough points in enough games, then you must be doing something well. 
And so you need to be able to focus on what you do well, not so much on what you do wrong. I think it's interesting, you know, if, if someone said, ah, oh, you know, I don't know, I'm playing average. They, they say it with such a tone, like average is a bad thing. Your, your average level is a bad thing when in reality, that's who you are. And I've made the mistake of, you know, I teach some high school girls who are high achievers and, you know, I might've said, oh, you know, I, I thought your practice was a B plus. And I mean, that, that might as well be an F minus minus. I mean, that, that's a mistake. That's a mistake I'll never, never make again. But, you know, average is, is your actual level. I, I don't understand why people look at that as, as such a negative thing. It, it's, it absolutely makes sense. And that's why, you know, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have won 20 plus grand slams is because their average their B and C game is higher than everyone else's B and C game. And hey, if someone if someone has an A game against them, then Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer aren't going to panic. They're going to say, "How long can this A game really last?" You know, we're not in a sprint; we're in a marathon. So, how long can this A game really last? And the truth is, the A game doesn't really last that long if you know what to do. And I think you know, you're, you're one of your guests on this podcast. Uh, Alistair, you know, he subs it up perfectly about momentum. And if you're down in a match, the longer you can stay out there, the better chance you have of turning things around. And that's something that great players understand. They understand that even though you're down, you have to be optimistic. Hope is the last thing that dies. You just stay out there. But as long as the umpire doesn't say game, set, match, and you lost the last point, everything's good. So this would normally be the time in the podcast where we go to the Instagram questions and we have some Kyle-isms and I have no idea what those are. We're going to get to those in a second, but there, there's one Instagram question that always comes up and it's advice for the three, five player. And you told me you had a great answer for that. So go ahead and answer the question. What is your best tip for the general 3.5 tennis player? This also could be a whole nother podcast, right? I mean, you could just like after one or two years of doing this, you should just be able to assemble all the answers to this question. And then maybe people will start to get the hint. So my answer to this is, and I hate to, I hate to beat a dead horse, but yes, increasing your shot tolerance, getting one more ball back than your opponent is great. In fact, my favorite statistic in tennis is this. If you get one more ball back than your opponent, you win 100% of the points. I tell that to people and their brain just explodes because they get it. But, but you know, th- th- there, there is a caveat to that. And I have to say, it's not as simple as, oh, you got to get one more ball back because for some people, they might not have the mental or physical capacity to do that. Like some people don't have a shot tolerance of 10, 15, 20 shots. So instead of putting pressure on yourself, to have to get every ball back and grind away. You can also think about it this way. Instead of having to get one more ball back, what if I make my opponent play poorly where their shot tolerance actually comes down to my level? If an opponent has a, you know, extreme forehand grip, they're probably not going to like low balls. So give them more low balls and all of a sudden they're not crushing that forehand anymore. So there's ways to make your opponent play worse and bring them down into the mud as opposed to putting so much pressure on yourself of, I really need to step up. I mean, perfect example is me. I mean, when, when you watch me play, like I'm serving volley, I'm six foot six, I'm 235 pounds. I'm not going to stay 10 feet behind the baseline to try to out rally someone. 
I'm just not. I have two bad hips. I have zero patience. I just, I, I have like a, I have a shaky forehand. The rest of my game is solid, but my forehand just, I haven't hit a good one since 1996. So it's one of those things where I can't put pressure on myself to play a game that isn't conducive to me in my strengths and my style. But what I am good at is finding a way to make my opponents play worse, to disrupt them, to make them uncomfortable. All of a sudden, I don't have to, my, my, my normal four or five shot tolerance can stay at four or five shots. And maybe my opponent comes down from six or seven to three or four. And so that takes a lot of pressure off of me, puts more pressure on my opponents where I'm still getting back one more ball than they are, but I just drop them down a little bit. So I think it's important for people not to put so much pressure on themselves there. You have to grind away all day. It's a matter of finding a way to make your opponent miss. I'm really hoping that for the podcast in 2023, this you know typical question starts to become best advice for the 4-0 or the 4-5 player because all the people out there listening are taking these coaches' advices, making one more ball, getting more consistent, and and upping their level. Um, okay, so now we're going to Kyleisms. And like I said, I'm pretty nervous here. I have no idea what a Kyleism is. You just seemed very excited about it. Uh, so, Kyle, the floor is yours. Well, you don't have to be nervous, but like, kind of like what we talked about before the podcast began, nerves are a good thing because it means it's important to you. So... If your podcast gets demonetized and you get kicked off, I'm to blame, right? No, I'm just kidding. Listen, so Kyleisms, you know, you had Rick Macy on the podcast earlier, and he has his Macyisms, and they're hung up all over the courts of his tennis center in Boca Raton. I've been there many times. It's 10 minutes away from my club. But Kyleisms are just something like they're these little one-liners, these cliches that I've just kind of heard through life and passing and other coaches and other people have said, and it just kind of stuck with me. And so I say to all my students and they're always like, wow, you should write a book, but they're called Kyleism. So I have a couple for you. So the first one is you will not have can do power if you have a can't do mentality, right? Don't be negative. Like you have to, if, if, if you, if you want good things to happen to you, you have to think of good things happening to you. Um, Things never happen to us. Things always happen for us. You can't hang out with negative people and expect to have a positive experience. Uh, do you have a problem or does the problem have you? And the best example of this is a student that gets hooked on a line call. All of a sudden, that student, does that student have a problem? Does the problem have you? Because if that student continues to think about the line call and then they lose a game, then they lose two games, they're still thinking about it. The problem has them. So do you have a problem or does the problem have you? And for a lot of people, the problem has has them. Oh, I I love that one. I'll, I'll probably use that tomorrow. Good. All right, proceed. Go. Yeah, we, we, we have a few more. Few people play tennis. Many people play at tennis, right? They don't actually understand tennis. So you see them out there. They're just kind of swatting at a ball. There's no purpose behind it. There's no... There's no real, you know, intensity. There's no practice. It's amazing how many players I talk to that are a fairly high level. And I ask them this simple question, what shape is a tennis court? You would be amazed how many people struggle with that question. If you understand the tennis court is a rectangle, it will make a lot more sense to how you swing at a ball, right? If the tennis court was an oval, then yeah, you can swing wildly across your body because so many people think it's an oval. 
but you have to think of it as it's a long rectangle. And then how many people understand the rate of gravity? Not many. It's 9.8 meters squared, right? So it's one of those things where if you're 10 feet behind the baseline, why are you aiming one foot over the net? So again, it, it's the difference between playing tennis and playing at tennis. A lot of people that play at tennis just kind of hit a ball. But people that play tennis understand these things. And I think that's another thing that can help a 3-5 a player rise up is that they understand these basic concepts. Um, it's not a setback. It's a setup. That's another one I like to use. Uh, also, the word now, N-O-W, the word now stands for no other way. If you want to do something and you want it done now, then there's no other way. There's no arguing. There's no there's no chitter-chatter. You do it now. There's no other way. Time is of the essence. The word past, and this also helps with players who have been hooked on a line call, the word past, P-A-S-T, stands for preoccupied about spent time, right? Because now a player's thinking so much about what could have been and why they lost that game and, oh, they just played a tiebreaker in the first set and they lost it. Oh, now they're thinking about everything they did wrong in the first set. You got to move on from it. You can't dwell. And then finally, uh, one of my favorite ones, I learned this from the United States Coaching Center of Excellence, which is high expectations, high forgiveness. So I do have high expectations and I expect you to do well. I expect you to give a full effort. But if you fall short, I'm going to forgive you because I believe in you as a person. I like you as a person. I respect you as a person. And I know that with the effort, with the attitude that you have, you're going to do better next time, right? If I have a player that wins a grand slam, I'm not going to be any more proud of them than I would be if they lose first round because I'm proud of the person. All right, Kyle. Well, look, thanks for coming on. It was great to finally meet you, you know, over the video. And, and now I know I haven't been DMing some bot that was trying to make me a better, better coach over the last two years. But like I said, I've, I've really valued the time that you have spent on me trying to make me a better coach. Hopefully the listeners out there have taken a couple things from you and, and they become a smarter player or, or a smarter coach. And, uh, you know, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you again for having me. And Congrats on all the success. And I love seeing your posts. They get better and better each time. So that really makes me really makes me happy. All right. I want to thank Kyle for coming on. Again, I'm thrilled that he's actually a real person. I was starting to get a little concerned there. Uh, he had a lot of great stuff for me and other coaches listening. But I loved our short conversation about the average level of the tennis player. I think everyone out there needs to learn to trust their average level. I love how he kind of said that you don't always get to play your A game. In fact, you almost never get to play your A game. And so you need to learn to trust that your B and C game is enough to get the job done. The other motivating thing that I take from that is the harder I work, the better that my B or C level will get. And that would give me confidence as well. So next time you're out in a match, think about all the average and even sometimes above average points you play and see if that makes you view your game a little differently. I wanna thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.